Would you take your Bibles and open them with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 7. Uh, this morning we'll be in verses 24 through 37. Mark, chapter 7, 24 through 37. Sunday school teachers and Bible study leaders, you'll forgive me if we get a little bit closer to Bible study start time as we took some time to honor Danny this morning, um, but it's worth it. Mark 7, 24 to 37, a sermon that I've titled, That's Weird, because it is, and you'll see, we'll see in just uh, a moment. When was the last time you did a double take? Maybe it was at uh, the gym when you were just doing your cardio on the elliptical or the treadmill and you looked over and saw somebody apparently doing the Michael Jackson thriller dance also on the treadmill. What is happening? Or maybe you're at Walmart and, well, someone else was at Walmart and, and you know how Walmart people can be sometimes. And he's wearing that or what is he doing with that laundry detergent or... When was the last time you did a double take when you had to turn to make sure you saw something the way you actually saw it to see what was going on? Uh, oftentimes, uh, we do double takes to see weird things that make no sense. But in Mark's gospel, chapter 7, verses 24 through 37, Mark, I think, is, is intending to call us to do a double take at Jesus, to see two weird things that he does, or two things that he does in very weird ways that make us go, did I... Did I just see, did I just hear what I thought I saw, what I thought I heard? What is going on here? In two ways that look very strange to us, and, and I hope, because I think Mark, as he's writing the gospel, intends to present them this way. In two ways that look strange to us, ways that may, may cause us to stumble for a second in the text, we learn from Mark, as he's recounting the life of Jesus, that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah whose blessing to Israel is meant to overflow to the nations. Mark presents this truth to us in strange ways that are meant to make us do a double take. The main idea of uh, our sermon this morning and, and of the text is, is simply this, that Jesus does weird things, or at least things that look weird to us, in order to show that he is a Messiah for all people, that he's a deliverer, a redeemer for all people. I hope that this morning, as we see this truth in God's word, that we would Come to understand that God has always intended for the whole world, all peoples, to be blessed through Christ. And then let us, as we see and revel in and rejoice in that fact, knowing that we are some of those people from among the nations who are blessed in Christ, let us then join the task of getting Christ to the world in both word and deed in all that we do. Would you, as you're comfortably able, stand with me as we honor God by reading his word, Mark 7, verses 24 through 37. We read, <clears throat> from there, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, let the children be fed first. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, and even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looked up to heaven, 
and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is God's word. You may be seated. Jesus does weird things, things that look weird to us anyway, in order to show, to demonstrate that he is a Messiah, a deliverer, a redeemer for all peoples, Jew and Gentile alike. This passage in Mark's gospel helps us to understand that Jesus is the Savior for all people, for all ethnicities, for people from every sort of background and nationality by giving us two scenes of Jesus doing strange things among an unexpected people. The first scene, the scene with this Gentile pagan woman may cause us to say, I hope causes us to say, what did he just say? Did I, did I just hear, did I really read what Jesus just said? Let's look at the setting of this scene. Joel uh, gave us a, a fantastic introduction to our passage today when he preached from Mark 7, verses 1 through 23 last week. If you missed that sermon, go back to our, uh, go to our website, to our sermon archive, and listen to that sermon this week. There, Joel reminded us of the intense priority that the Pharisees, those Jewish teachers, Jewish leaders of the day, uh, the emphasis that the Pharisees put on ritual cleanliness. Hands had to be washed a certain way. Food had to be prepared a certain way. Some foods were to be avoided because they were unclean. And certain people were excluded from fellowship in the community if they had certain diseases or if they weren't Jewish. Then in the same context of this discussion about all the stuff out there that defiles and makes people unclean, all the stuff that, that the Pharisees said we had to wash our hands from, Jesus reminds his disciples of what the purpose of the Old Testament law and cleanliness regulations were all about. Not about teaching us that we had to wash ourselves of, sin, of, of the sin of the world, but showing us that God is the only true holy one. And that uncleanness that comes from sin is not an out there problem, but a problem of the heart. Sin is not a those people problem. Sin is a me problem. And it's in the context of that reminder that Mark has Jesus traveling to where, of all places, Tyre and Sidon, a region to the northwest of Galilee that was and had almost always been entirely Gentile, entirely non-Jewish, entirely unclean. Jesus is intending to go away privately, Mark says. Maybe he needed a rest. Maybe he needed to teach the disciples, intended to teach the disciples without distraction of the crowds. But having already caught the attention of Tyrians and Sidonians uh, all the way back at the beginning of his ministry in Mark chapter 3, Jesus gets recognized in Tyre and crowds start gathering like they do everywhere he goes. So here is Jesus in an unclean place among unclean people. And one of these unclean people, a woman who is not just any Gentile, she's a Syrophoenician, meaning she is from Syrian and Phoenician descent, very likely a, a, a pagan in her own worship practices, not worshiping the God of Israel. This woman comes to Jesus asking for help for her daughter who is accosted, oppressed by an unclean spirit. So Jesus in Mark 7, 1 to 23 says, uncleanliness is not an out there problem, it's an in here problem. And then Jesus immediately in the next scene is going to an unclean place where unclean people with unclean spirits are asking for his help. 
And so it's like Mark is, is, is intent, he's putting these two scenes right next to each other, uh, this teaching of Jesus and this event in Jesus' life that help us to come to grips with un, uh, things that we consider unclean. But Jesus just talked about uncleanness. It's not an out there thing. It's a, it's a heart thing. It's not a problem of those people. It's a problem that starts in my own sinful heart. And then he goes into an unclean place. What is going to happen? Jesus is surrounded by uncleanness. And that's precisely what Mark wants us to notice. We come into this scene and immediately, or very quickly anyway, there's a scandal. It's into this setting that Mark presents us with a, 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 a scandal, something that makes us go, oh my goodness, I can't believe that happened. This woman, the Syrophoenician woman with a pagan background, speaks to Jesus. Now, if you're familiar with the background of John's Gospel, chapter 4, and Jesus' talk with the Samaritan woman at the well, you know that it was not considered proper for a Jewish man to speak to a woman who was not his wife. All the more improper if that woman was not a Jew. But here, this woman, Syrophoenician, probably pagan, maybe with greater bravery than the woman with a bleeding issue who snuck up to teach Jesus' cloak in order to be healed, this Gentile woman bravely throws herself in front of Jesus and pleads for his help for her daughter. Now here's where it gets really weird. Rather than Jesus having direct compassion on this woman, healing her daughter immediately, saying nice and encouraging things to her like we might expect Jesus to do, he says something really strange. She pleads for his help to cast this demon out of her daughter, and Jesus says, let the kids eat first. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. You may be thinking, did I read that right? Did I pick up some heretic's Bible on the way to church this morning? Did, did Jesus just call this lady a dog? It's not right to take children's bread and throw it to dogs, lady who's asking for help. In fact, if you read the parallel account of this event in Matthew's gospel, chapter 15, Jesus sounds even more harsh there. What is going on here? Did I, just, did I really hear what Jesus just said? Now, there are some in our culture today who, who would like to import a, a 21st century postmodern worldview onto Mark chapter 7, and in so doing, they read Jesus being racist. Now, to be sure, to call someone a dog in Jesus' day was a common insult. And Jews were well known for less than affectionately calling Gentiles dogs. And Jesus says, as a Jew to a non-Jewish woman, it's not right to take children's bread and give it to the dogs. What is Jesus doing? One such individual who, who claims that Jesus is being racist here, I'll not give his name because he doesn't need any more attention, but he reads this passage and calls Jesus a racist who, when confronted by this woman repented of his racism. Now, there's all sorts of problems there. If Jesus has sin that needs to be repented of, he's not a sinless savior who can provide salvation for anybody, so why are we even reading this book? Or maybe something else is going on. If we aren't reading any of the rest of Mark's gospel, if we aren't reading any of the rest of the other gospels or the rest of scripture for that matter, we might come to such a conclusion. If we just come to Mark 7, verses 24 to 30, pull it out of context, having never read or considered anything else in scripture, we might say, Jesus is kind of racist. But when we take in the whole context of Mark's gospel and Jesus' constant compassion for needy, broken people at every turn, we stop here at this really strange statement and we say, this is weird. Like weird on purpose weird. What's going on? What's going on? This, this 
event in Jesus's life causes us to stumble on purpose. We're meant to slow down, to stop, to ask, what's really happening here? And it seems most clear that what's going on in the scene is that Jesus isn't just saying stuff and he's not being a jerk, but that he's teaching. Jesus' statement to this Syrophoenician woman is, if you'll receive it, a parable in a sentence. A parable in a sentence. Now, normally we're used to parables being much longer uh, kind of narratives uh, with with tight sort of plot structure. And and even if they're short, we still know that they're parables. We don't necessarily maybe come to this as, as thinking that Jesus is teaching through a parable in this moment, but he is. This statement, let the children eat first. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, is a parable. The children in this parable, are the people of Israel, the covenant people of God, to whom God promised a Messiah and deliverer. It's not right to take what is promised to the Jews and leave them deprived of it in order to give it to other people, Jesus is saying in this parable. And in this way, Jesus is teaching that the Messiah and the promise of God is for Jews first. Not because Jews are ethnically superior, not because Jews are morally superior to Gentiles or the other people of the nations. My goodness, read the Old Testament and you'll find that the Jews are hardly morally superior to the nations around them, but that God's blessing to them comes first to them because God and his love covenanted with them. It's the same reason for the same reason that Paul says in Romans 1 verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Jesus does, in a parabolic way, call this woman a dog, sort of. Now he uses a less insulting term. He uses a a diminutive term, a term for a house dog rather than a a stray on the street. But he, he calls this woman a dog in a way that affirms she is a Gentile. And maybe affirms in a way for her or confirms for her what she already knows about her ethnic and religious difference from the Jews. She's been called a dog by Jews all her life. This is a scandalous moment. And we do poorly with this text if we try to minimize or wipe away the scandal. As though Jesus were this always perfectly polite, always chivalrous, never provocative individual. Like, we expect Jesus to show up and be nice and be kind to everybody all the time and never do anything out of, the, uh, out of the ordinary or out of the main or do anything that people might say, what did he just say? But that's not who Jesus is. He messes with people all the time and not like in a mischievous or capricious way, but he says things that, that put people on edge, that knock them off center in order to get their attention so he can teach them something that if he were just being kind and polite and chivalrous all the time, they wouldn't have the ears to listen to. The Son of God has thrown a huge stumbling block in the way of this woman. And not a stumbling block that's meant to cause her to fall and never be able to get up again spiritually, but one that makes her stop and consider what Jesus is saying. He says, God has meant to bless Israel through the Messiah first. And then he seems to kind of just leave it there. And now this whole interaction becomes in light of what he's spoken parabolically, this whole event in Jesus' life now becomes a living parable played out in real life. What is going to happen? We're met with a surprise in this scene. Almost without missing a beat, the Gentile pagan woman declares back to Jesus an understanding of the gospel and of God's promise to Israel. She says, yes, Lord, you're right. 
but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the children's plate. Or in the interpreted language of this living parable, you're right, Lord, but God meant even to bless the nations from the overflow of his covenant with Israel. And in this way, this woman, this Syrophoenician pagan woman, whether she knew it or not, understood the promise of God to Abraham, the father of the Jews, when God said to him in Genesis, in you, Abram, shall all the nations be blessed. And in so doing, this Syrophoenician pagan woman precedes the words of Paul when he writes in Galatians, Galatians 3, verses 7 through 9, Paul says, Know then, it is, the house of, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, Paul writes, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Do you remember why Jesus preaches in parables, teaches in parables? It was, as he explained in Mark chapter 4, to conceal the secret of the kingdom of God from those whose hearts were hardened to it, from those who did not have eyes to see or ears to hear the good news of the kingdom, and who even when they heard it would not respond rightly. But at the same time, Jesus uses parables in order to reveal the secret of the kingdom, to reveal spiritual truths to those who were ready to receive them. This unclean woman in an unclean place with a daughter who has an unclean spirit has eyes of faith to see not just that Jesus can heal, but that Jesus is the water of life for the healing of the nations. And not just for the Jews, but for all people. She has ears to hear, not just what Jesus says, but what God has promised to all peoples out of the overflow of his blessing and promise to Israel. She has a heart that is ready to believe. Not just that Jesus can heal her daughter, but that he is the Messiah who comes for the nations. This beautiful scene, strange as it may appear to our ears, to our eyes, this scene reminds us that Jesus is, he really is for all people, Amen. all kinds of people. For the Jew first, not as a matter of favoritism or a function of, of the supremacy of the Jews, no, but as a function of proximity. Jesus is God's Christ who comes from Israel. And so it's to Israel he's meant to preach first. For they were the ones who God spoke the promise to. But the promise was never just for Israel. Amen. It was always for the nations. Genesis 12, God's promise to Abraham, in you the nations will be blessed. I should hope that knowing this, that Jesus is a Messiah for all people and all kinds of people and people from every ethnic and national background. I should hope that knowing this, there would never be among us as followers of Christ any sense of racial superiority, any sense of racism or, or ethnocentrism. And I would expect that if I happened in your Bible study group after worship today and you were discussing the sermon, that your group would affirm this. We ought not keep people who don't look like us or sound like us or have the same nationality as us. We should not keep them away from the gospel. But what about the people we really don't think should get the gospel? Last Saturday, our family was at the uh, balloon fiesta. My wife, Nikki, was gifted some tickets to a sponsor tent, and we took the kids for dinner, and the balloon glow was a nice treat for the family. And uh, while I was out on the field with our kids uh, taking pictures, collecting balloon cards because it's a competition, and whoever gets the most wins, my wife sent me a text to let me know 
uh, give me a heads up that, that a certain individual that I don't particularly have a lot of fondness for had arrived as a, as a guest in the tent too. Now, I don't really know this person personally. I just kind of know of them. I'm not a fan. So I texted back to my wife a sarcastic quip, and she did the right and honorable thing by not responding to my idiocy. <laughs> and when I got back to the tent, I proceeded almost the rest of the time we were there, quietly scoffing under my breath, making comments to the side about how ridiculous I thought this other person was and how just, I don't know, generally irritated by their presence I was. And then the next Sunday morning, last Sunday, Joel preached from Mark 7, 1 to 23, and I saw again coming up what my text for preaching this week was that I had planned months ago, and I realized it, that Jesus had thrown a stumbling block in front of me last Saturday. I still harbor prejudice about who I think is worthy of the compassion of God and the truth of the gospel from God through me. Now, it's not a racial kind of discrimination. It's not a sex-based sort of discrimination. It's more of a, I think that person's terrible kind of discrimination. I just don't like that guy. I just don't like that lady. Now, I hope I'm the only person in here who's still struggling and needing to repent of this, but my guess is I'm not. My guess is some others of you are like me, and there are people that you know and you don't like for whatever reason, and for whom you would like nothing more than for God to just give them the justice for their sin that you know they deserve. Those dogs. I can't believe God would ever save someone like that. I can't be bothered to take the gospel to that person. Why should I? And we may not say it that way, but we do say it. And as soon as that thought creeps through my head or the words leave my mouth, I'm undone. I'm just like stripped naked before the God of the universe with nothing to hide. Why? Because that's me. The dog is me. Remember, sin isn't an out there problem. Sin is a me and my heart problem. Those that we might consider as dogs do need saving from sin. And friends, all the same, so do I. All the same, so do you. And I am so glad and so grateful that Jesus is a Messiah for a dog like me. That he died for this dog's sins. That the blessing of God's Christ comes not in crumbs to the dogs who are below the children's table, but the blessing of God's Christ comes in whole. Because Jesus doesn't just give some of himself to people who aren't Jewish. Jesus doesn't just give a little bit of himself to people who are not like us, but he gives all of himself to all who will receive him by faith so that we might believe on Him in whole, trust Him in whole, call on Him as Lord in whole, and be saved from all of the ugliness that our sinful hearts produce. Jesus, in a strange way, draws this truth out of this pagan woman so that His disciples and those who would read the text thinking that because they're Jewish, they're somewhat better, so that all of them would have a stumbling block thrown in front of them too, to go, oh gosh, I thought about somebody that way the other day and withheld Christ-like compassion and the truth of the gospel from them. Jesus is causing me to stumble and not in a way that makes me fall in my faith, but in a way that makes me stop and consider who, who do I, I say I'm not, I say I don't have prejudices, I say I'm not uh, unbiased, but who, who do I really think I'm better than? Jesus is calling us to repentance of, of discriminating and, and, and demonstrating prejudice 
are, are operating from a basis of prejudice in terms of getting the gospel to and caring for people. That's just the first scene. There's more to our passage. We go from being shocked out of our unconscious bias with the gospel by something Jesus says to being absolutely perplexed, I hope you were too, by something Jesus does. We go from, what did he just say? To, I'm sorry, he did what now? As Jesus heals this deaf Gentile man. From Tyre and this Syrophoenician woman, Jesus goes and makes kind of a, a circuitous route. The scene shifts from Tyre now to the area of the Decapolis, which is just east of the Sea of Galilee. The Decapolis wasn't one place. It was kind of a region of uh, 10 cities that held uh, kind of a, a loose alliance and affiliation together. Jesus moves from Tyre to the Decapolis. You remember it was near or in the Decapolis, the region of the Decapolis, where in Mark chapter 5, Jesus cast a legion of demons out of a Gentile Gerasene man. You remember that? And it's in this place, the Decapolis, that Jesus has brought another man. He's almost certainly a Gentile too, as most people in that region would have been, like the Syrophoenician woman before. We don't know if he was like from a, a, a pagan background or if maybe he'd been a God-fearer. Mark doesn't tell us. But rather than coming to Jesus, he is brought to Jesus by his friends. And the problem is not with a family member afflicted by an unclean spirit. The problem is his own. The man is deaf, and he speaks with such a, a speech impediment that he can't be understood. Lay your hands on him, will you, Jesus? His friends plead. Now this time, there's no off-putting word from Jesus. There's no parable in a sentence, but there is a strange method to what Jesus does next. How does Jesus heal this man? Well, he starts by putting his fingers in the man's ears. Then he spits which, by the way, it's just a funny connection. You don't have to know this, but it's just like fun for the day. The Greek word for spit is ptusas. <laughs> Neat. <laughs> Jesus puts his fingers in the man's ears. He spits, and then he seems to apply that spit to the man's tongue. I'm telling you, friends, if my doctor pulled this number on me when I go in for a checkup, I am immediately looking for a new doctor. But in Jesus' day, this isn't necessarily a weird thing. It was not uncommon for physicians to include touch like this in their healing, even to include spit or saliva in, in aspects of their healing. And we're going to later on in Mark's gospel, we're going to see Jesus doing something with spit and a blind man also. Bear in mind, though, this man is deaf, can't hear anything. So whatever Jesus would say to him, he isn't likely to understand even if maybe he can read lips a little bit, a lot can get lost in translation. So it may well be that Jesus' physical touch, putting his fingers in his ears, is a touch of compassion. I'm here with you, buddy. I see you. You may not understand what I'm going to say or what I'm about to do, but I'm communicating. I'm, I'm going to do something with your ears here. It's a touch of communication. Also, like, there's just something about physical touch when your kid is struggling, when you know, when, 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 when your wife or your husband's having a hard time, like sometimes words just don't convey what they really need to say. What you really need is just come alongside, put a hand on their shoulder, wrap them up in a hug to communicate, I'm here with you. You can trust me. Whatever's next, I got you. I think in some sense, Jesus' physical touch of this man is communicating that. And then Jesus does what I've never seen my doctor do, not spit, but he prays. 
Jesus lifts his head to heaven, looking to heaven, he sighs, or he groans, as some of your translations may, may say. I think we're meant to understand something of the difficulty of this man's healing by Jesus' sighing. Has there ever been such a, such a thing in your way, seemingly so difficult, that you don't have words to pray, but all you know to do is look to heaven and, ah, oh, something like that. And then he says in Aramaic, the language of the day, the language of the region, open up, ephatha. And surprise of all surprises, the man's ears are healed. He can hear and his tongue is loosed. He, is no, he no longer has a speech impediment, but he can speak correctly and clearly. He can speak orthotically. So what's the meaning of all this? This is a strange healing, right? This is weird. What is Jesus teaching? What is Mark intending us to learn about Jesus through this? Is Jesus giving us a routine to follow in order to heal other people? Hardly, hardly. In fact, Jesus heals in so many different ways that there is no easily discernible pattern to follow for his healing. Let's just take a quick survey of healings in Mark. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus speaks to the paralytic. Get up your mat. Get up, take up your mat and go home. And the man's healed. In Mark chapter 5, he commands with his word the legion of demons to come out of the man and into the herd of pigs. In the same chapter of Mark 5, a woman with a bleeding issue sneaks up behind Jesus unawares and touches him, touches his cloak secretly with faith and is healed. And then Jesus himself touches the hand of a dead girl, the daughter of Jairus, and calls her to life in the very same chapter. Again in Mark chapter 6, the sick and the lame hope to touch the fringe of his garment and be well. And now in Mark chapter 7, Jesus speaks from a distance in the case of the, the Syrophoenician woman with a daughter who's at home afflicted by a demon. He speaks from a distance. He doesn't even put, lay eyes on the girl, much less touch her, and she is depossessed. And then the account of this deaf man and his touch and the spit and the speech. There's no discernible formula for healing taught by Jesus. And if you're looking for one in the Gospels, you will drive yourself crazy trying to find it. Rather, all of the attention is on Jesus as the one who heals. Sometimes he speaks, often he touches, but hardly two healings are the same. The consistent factors in every healing and every work done by Jesus like this is the faith of those seeking his help and the power of Christ to effect the healing. Those are the two things that are consistent in every place. The faith of the one seeking help and the power of Christ to do it. His power is clear in the word that he speaks. Ephatha, open up. This is not a magical incantation. It's a normal word. He's not saying abracadabra or some other sort of magical incantational formula. It's, no, it's a normal word. A kid knocking on the door to home after he, to his house, after he's come home from playing in the street, is going to say to his mom, Ephatha. Ephatha, I'm ready for dinner. It's a normal word. And the way that Jesus offers the word isn't with superstitious formulary. Anybody can say this word the way that Jesus said it. But the point is, not just anyone is saying it here. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, as Mark introduces him to us in Mark chapter 1, he's the one saying it. The Lord who told Moses in Exodus who also complained of a speech impediment himself. You remember Moses at the burning bush. God calls him to go and speak to Pharaoh. And Moses says, listen, Lord, I, 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 I don't speak, speak well. Send somebody else. The Lord says to Moses, with his speech impediment, maybe a stutter like that, the Lord says to Moses, who made man's mouth? 
who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? That Lord who spoke to Moses, who also had a speech impediment from the burning bush, that Lord has taken on flesh in the man, Jesus of Nazareth. And he commands to this man's ears and to his tongue, open up. Why? Because he is the Lord who has all power to do it. He's the one. He's the one who made the man deaf and unable to speak. And because he's the one who made him deaf and unable to speak, he's also the one who can make him able to hear and to speak clearly. This is the point. Jesus, and only Jesus, is the source of healing. This strange scene with this weird healing method is all meant to show us that it's Jesus and just Jesus who can do this. So we've met the man. We see Jesus's method. We see the meaning of his healing, that it's all about who Christ is and not about anything that we do, and that he's a healer, not just for Jewish people, but for Gentiles to come to him in faith also. And we're left with a strange mandate in this text. Jesus does what we, we've seen him do earlier in Mark's gospel. He tells the people not to say anything about him and about what he's done. He does this amazing thing. The people are in wonder, and he says, shh, quiet, don't say anything. This messianic secret, as it's often called in Mark's gospel, has reared its head again. Why is Jesus trying to keep the message from spreading? Why wouldn't Jesus want people to know about him? If he's the Messiah, if he's God's Messiah to bring salvation to the Jews and also to Gentile, why wouldn't he want people to know about him? Well, precisely because if all that is known about him at this point is that he's a healer and a wonder worker, the message about who Jesus is will be incomplete. To be sure, Jesus does heal many, but we know he didn't heal all people who came to him. He didn't physically heal everyone. In fact, it's not sickness and paralysis and bad eyesight. It's not deafness only that Jesus comes to heal. He's not a physician of the body. He's a physician of the soul. He's come not just to make bodies whole, but to restore sinners to right relationship and to life in the presence of God for Jews and Gentiles. Amen. Jesus commands this man and the people in the Decapolis to be quiet about what he has done because his work isn't finished, friends. Very quickly now in Mark's gospel, we're going to start speeding toward the last week of Jesus's life into the cross where he will die for the sins of many. And after being in the tomb three days, he will rise in glory and victory. And then, then the disciples will understand who he is, not in part, but in full. Then they will understand that the Christ didn't just come to restore a geopolitical kingdom. That God's Messiah didn't come just to heal people, make them feel better, but that God's Christ came to raise dead souls to life and reconcile them to God. And then the message that he is Lord and Christ can go out undiluted and without hindrance to the nations. Now, the really funny thing is, this man and these people cannot keep their mouths shut about Jesus. In fact, the more Jesus says, the more he protests, the more he charges them, the more they speak about him. The more Jesus says, no, seriously, guys, I mean it. You got to shut up. Don't tell anyone. The more he pleads with them not to say anything, the more people that they tell. And in telling, what do they say? They say, he has done all things well. There's not a thing that he does imperfectly. And in saying, these Gentile people, in saying he has done all things well, they're echoing the refrain of praise to the creator in Genesis 1 that what he did was good. It was good. It was good. It was very good. They sing that he has made the deaf hear and the mute 
speak. And so they are declaring, uh, declaring that the, a- the age of the Messiah, who is prophesied by Isaiah, has come among them. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. These people, whether they knew it or not, are praising God for the fulfillment of prophecy, uh, 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 fulfillment of prophecy and of promise that his Christ would come and do these things. And they can't shut up about it. So what should we glean, what should we take from the second Gentile healing that is different from the passage before in the Syrophoenician woman? For the sake of time, I'll draw our attention to just one thing, and that is the way that Jesus condescends, the way that he comes down, the way that he meets this man to deal with him and to make him whole. Jesus goes out of his way, taking a really strange route back to Galilee and heals this man. When presented with the man, he takes him away privately. Did you notice that? And he deals with him personally. He touches him, communicating all that he is intending to do. And by his own divine power as the Son of God, heals him. My friend, do you understand that if you are a Christian today, it is because Christ has done precisely the same for you? Listen, the Son of God who is divine in his essence... He's no less than God. He is one with the Father. This Son of God took the long way around by becoming a man like you and me. He left the glory and the holiness of heaven to enter this world that's stained and broken with our sin, and He gave His sinless life at the cross, taking all of the wrath of God, the righteous anger of God against your sin, against my sin. He took it and then put death itself in the grave when He rose from the grave. When you heard the gospel and believed, it was not because you were so good, but because the Holy Spirit opened your ears to hear it with faith. Brothers and sisters, when you saw your need of a Savior, it was not because you were so morally outstanding to see it, but because God himself supplied eyes of faith to you so that you could see that you could do nothing to save yourself. And when you believed on Christ and were born again, it was not because you were so powerful to renew yourself, but because Christ Jesus lives and he has brought you to life in him. He's done it all. He's done everything. And he's done all things well, not just healing deaf and mute people, but bringing dead souls back to life, reconciling them to God, restoring them to life in relationship with God. Jesus has done, he has condescended to each and every one of us in his incarnation. He became a man like you and me. He went to the cross in order to take our sin, to pay a debt we could not pay. He does that for you if you've trusted him. And he was raised from the dead, not just so a group of people could be raised from the dead, but so that every individual who has placed their faith in Christ for salvation may be raised from the dead to live with him forever. What he did for this deaf and mute Gentile man, he's done for all of us. And not just collectively, but personally. So be glad. Be glad for what Christ has done. Be glad that Christ has condescended to you individually to redeem you. I like to think of gladness as something like joy mixed with gratitude. 
of happiness in God and because of Christ with gratefulness for what he has done. He's opened your ears. He's opened your eyes. He's softened your heart to believe. And this he has done personally for you. And what shall we do with this gladness? What shall we do with gladness that comes from reflecting on strange things that Jesus does in order to show that he's not just a Messiah for Jews, he's a Messiah for everybody? What do we do with this gladness? What shall we do with all the gratitude that Christ inspires in those that he has saved from wrath to become children of God? Shall we sing? I dare say we shall. Shall we revel in his glory? I would wager, friends, we must. Shall we gather with those who else he has changed and follow after him in obedient faith? I would say to you that we are this moment. Shall we, for all our gladness in Christ, who is the Savior for all peoples, do such weird things as say to our neighbors who wander in spiritual darkness that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the light and only Savior? Friends, with all the gladness in Christ that we can muster, I do pray that we will. May it be so. May our lives erupt and overflow with joy in Christ because he's a savior for all peoples. And let us repent of all prejudice we may hold against any sort of person, not just racial or, or gender-based, but maybe it's a political thing. Maybe it's a they live on that side of town thing. Maybe it's a they work for that other company or they play for the Lobos kind of thing. Maybe it's those kind of biases we need to repent of when it comes to demonstrating the compassion of Christ and, and speak the truth of the gospel to. May our lives erupt in joy for Christ who does weird things to get our attention to show us the most important truth that he's not just a savior for Jews, but for Gentiles too, for people of all nations. May this be so in us. And may it be that when the world calls us weird, when the world calls us strange, when the world is doing a double take at us because of the things we say about Christ and the way that we love others in Christ, when the world commands us to be quiet about the weird things we're saying about Christ, may we reply with all joy and gratitude to the Son of God when we cannot help but speak of all that we have seen and heard. May it be so. Let's pray together.